Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a podcast from the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. Today, I'm speaking with Abdi Latif Dahir. Abdi is East Africa correspondent for The New York Times and has covered the region for many years as a reporter. We talk about Abdi's recent reporting on President Yoweri Museveni's son, General Muhozi, and the politics of succession in Uganda. And then we have a broader discussion about Kenya, Tanzania, and Somalia. Really great to finally have you on, Abdi. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. I want to start off, uh, first of all, talking about General Muhozi of Uganda, who you recently profiled in a New York Times article. Who is he? What is he like? And what can you tell us about him? And will he be the next president of Uganda? General Muhozi Kanyarugaba is the eldest son of President Yoweri Museveni, who, as we know, has been president uh, for the past 37 years. Muhozi was born in Tanzania, you know, while his father fought the previous uh, Ugandan government uh, under the dictator Idi Amin. He, you know, was educated in schools in Kenya and later in Uganda. He studied in military schools, both in the United Kingdom and uh, in the United States. We get a sense from an early age that he's being groomed for a future in which he either plays a significant role in the country's leadership or at least, uh, you know, within the military itself, or if not, you know, to actually um, succeed his father. He serves in key positions within the military, becoming a special advisor to his father, becoming uh, the head of the Special Forces Command, which is an elite unit tasked with protecting the president, and later on becoming the leader of actually the nation's land forces. In terms of like just who he is, you know, people who are close to him told me that, you know, he's, he's, he's a kind man, he listens, he's generous to a fault, uh, he shares his time, his energy, his resources, he cares about Uganda, he cares a lot about like military strategy, and in many ways, like, you know, waxing lyrical about leaders like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. But, you know, we also know that Mahozi is a, a privileged son of a leader who has become increasingly authoritarian. You know, he has openly gone after prominent people, particularly opposition figures, threatening them, sometimes even on social media. The special forces command that he commanded was accused of carrying out human rights violations, uh, particularly around the 2021 elections. And those allegations are now part of a complaint that is filed within the International Criminal Court about like, you know, his future as a the leader of Uganda. He definitely has been positioning himself as such. And, and all of that has now just been amplified, particularly by barrage of tweets that he has been putting out on social media, casting himself as the future leader of Uganda. Great. So that segues as well into the next question, which, which of course, we have to talk about his tweets, which General Muhozi, I think, has been in the picture for a while for people who, who follow uh, Ugandan politics, as you as you said. But, but it is these tweets that have sort of catapulted him into <laughs> a regional, if not uh, international, intrigue. What is up with his tweeting, you know, among the more headline-grabbing ones is his threatening to invade Kenya. So what did people around the general tell you about why he's tweeting? Is there a method to the madness? So the tweets are, are yes, the, the one way in which he has basically using social media, he has catapulted his image, uh, you know, amplifying his image and his profile both within Uganda and uh, across the region. Usually many of them are sent in the middle of the night to his almost 700,000 followers by now. They range from the bombastic to the trivial to, as you said, Alan, to the potentially damaging ones, particularly when he wades into critical security issues in the region. 
you know, there was a tweet about, you know, siding with the Tigrayan forces who were fighting the federal troops in Ethiopia. He voiced uh, support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine multiple times, including in recent weeks. And of course, uh, he offered to uh, 100 cows to marry Italy's first female prime minister. And so the tweets have alarmed uh, many Ugandans. They've alarmed leaders in the region that I spoke to, diplomats in Uganda, including also like, you know, people within his own circles. They have also shocked military officials. Last year, he announced on Twitter that he would immediately retire from the military, which uh, is a prerequisite if you are going to run for office in Uganda. He, of course, retracted it later, but many in the army were surprised that he could take such a move, even though he knew that this was a process, that leaving the army was a process. And then finally, I mean, the constant barrage of tweets, they've also annoyed his father, uh, particularly, I am told, when he declared last year that he he would capture Kenya's capital in two weeks. Uh, This was a huge embarrassment for President Museveni, who had to issue a statement apologizing to Kenyans who spoke to President Ruto at the time. And then more importantly, said in interviews days later that his son would leave Twitter altogether. Of course, we now know that his son has not left Twitter. He continues to tweet. He continues to speak his mind. He has said that nobody would be able to ban him from anything. It's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that the father has been positioning him as a leader that could succeed him potentially in the future, it's one of the reasons why like, he's been pulling back both uh, publicly or also among the supporters within the ruling party. Hmm. There's a couple of questions I have there. But first of all, I mean, you mentioned... Obviously, he's waded into these regional politics, sometimes seemingly, you know, uh, shooting from the hip, so to speak. But then there are there are other regional issues of pressing consequence that he that he also wades into. What are his relations around the region? Is he taken seriously by regional leaders? Yes, I mean, the tweets are definitely, I mean, taken serious, largely also because, you know, he was the head of the land forces in Uganda. So he is a military uh, official making this very uh, sensitive comments without any clearance, you know, from the military or from the ruling party uh, that has, you know, dominated politics in Uganda for, for decades now. At the time, the Ugandan military, you know, as we know, they're involved in peacekeeping operations in Somalia. They had just begun in late 2021 uh, an operation into the Democratic Republic of Congo targeting uh, a rebel group that Uganda accuses of carrying out a a string of deadly attacks in in Uganda. And at the time when he's making also all these uh, comments, you know, he's also doing the diplomatic rounds. Like he, he met with the presidents of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa. He met with the former Kenyan president, Uhuru Kenyatta. He had gone to, uh, you know, Egypt. He sort of like positioned himself as this leader who is a key figure in ending the bitter row between Uganda and Rwanda, which led to the reopening of the borders last year after a three-year closure. So as much as, you know, these tweets could seem very trifling and unserious, at the same time, he has very important duties and also carrying out all these diplomatic missions. And so it's kind of sort of like hard not to pay attention if the leaders in the region are not even taking them him seriously at least they're paying attention, of course. Uh, and that seriousness is also showed in the fact that also President Museveni had to come out, issue an entire statement saying, asking Kenyans for forgiveness, or when he said that non-white people across the world, you know, was support Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Museveni had to come out and say that his son was speaking for himself and wasn't speaking for Uganda, which he said that, you know, wasn't aligned in, in this war. Annoying his father doesn't seem like a, a terribly good 
strategy for succeeding his father. So I'm just, I'm wondering, um, what do you think is going on here? Is he almost trying to chart a path that goes around his father to succeeding his father? Um, does he have a constituency? I'm just wondering if you can help us sort of make sense of, of the politics of all this. Let's talk a little bit about the, the succession plans, right? Like in Uganda, I think I think that's where we can start. What does Museveni want, right? After 37 years in power, he's 78 years old. He has been a six-term president. But, you know, the, the politics of transition have been ever elusive. Like, you know, they, they've kept coming up like over the past decade. Uh, around every election, there's this idea of like, will Museveni run again? The one thing that Almost everybody I interviewed for that article, whether they were analysts or diplomats or people within the ruling party or the government, you know, the one thing that they all agreed on was that President Museveni will not give up power. He will not relinquish power while he's still alive. And so, you know, he does understand that the power that he has, the the ruling national resistance movements, parties, tentacles have reached deep into every nook and cranny of Ugandan politics and economy. Museveni has changed laws to stay in office. He continues to crack down on the opposition up until right now, subjected them to detention, disappearances, torture. But now that he knows that he's getting older, there's a lot of talk both within the ruling party and within the military and intelligence services about succession and about who is going to succeed him. One of the ways in which he last year, particularly around early last year, uh, when he was sending his son around the region, when he was throwing him this state dinner that was supposed to be his 48th birthday party that was attended by also presidents like uh, Rwandan President Paul Kagame. Part of the reason why he's doing that is that he is using his son to sort of like as an indemnity to basically say that he is positioning him uh, as insurance in the public eye and in the eyes of the ruling elite that there are members within my family who would be able to succeed me, who will be able to guarantee that my philosophy and, and the way we've done things over the past 37 years would be able to continue. Enter Mohosi now. And so Mohosi comes into the picture somewhere around late 2021. He takes up this role largely, as we know now, with the encouragement of his father, you know, he's doing all these diplomatic rounds. You know, he's he has this prominent roles within the, the military. And of course, uh, all this uh, leads to like around April 2021, when he has his 48th birthday party, nationwide birthday celebrations, and, and all this like amplify the speculation that he was being groomed to succeed his father. And, you know, he does have a constituency. We did see like a lot of like young people come out all across the country. We do know that there are a lot of business people, uh, some members of parliament within the National Ruling Party who support him, who have publicly spoken in his support, who say that uh, Museveni should hand the baton to the next generation and the person to hand that baton to will be Mohosi in 2026. But despite all that, I think towards the end of last year and also like what's just happened over the past several weeks, uh, particularly since the story was published, Mahosi has begun appointing key people and saying that, you know, we're, they're becoming a movement, they're becoming more structured, you know, appointing a spokesperson and some key regional leaders. But a lot of, uh, you know, the people who had been supporting him, uh, many of them have now come out to like openly support actually President Museveni's, uh, you know, re-election campaign in 2026. As we know, like a lot of people within the ruling party have been and within the cabinet have called Museveni to run again in 2026. And some of Mahosi's own people have gone to basically say that the presidential candidate for 2026 is Museveni. And that's sort of like, you know, uh, a slap against Mahosi. And uh, 
in many ways, like derails a lot of his ambitions. But he continues to tweet. He continues to say that he will succeed his father and that he still has ambitions to run in 2026. To broaden it out slightly, what were your thoughts as reporting this story about what this tells us about the risks ahead for Uganda as as President uh, Museveni ages? Uganda sits at at a crossroads. I mean, it's a beautiful, fertile country. It's among the youngest nations in the world by age. Uh, And a lot of those young people that I spoke to feel that the political and the socioeconomic status uh, of the country isn't working for them. The coronavirus pandemic decimated the economy in many ways. Food prices have been growing recently when we did the Ebola coverage and and there were all these lockdowns on some districts talking to the people there that, you know, we will not be able to take in another lockdown. Unemployment has been increasing. Hunger has been pervasive in many households. And of course, uh, Uganda, uh, despite it being a landlocked country, like, you know, it still is a huge ally of the United States and the European Union. It's an important player in Horn of Africa and the larger Great Lakes region. It's involved in in conflicts in the Congo, in Somalia. It hosts South Sudanese refugees. And Museveni, despite it all, has has become very adept at playing the big powers against one another. He does business with the United States and the European Union while welcoming Russia and China at the same time. He pays lip service to democratic ideals, but he's has yet to seriously like end human rights abuses, crack down on opposition members, end, ending corruption, which is also like in the, in the, at the back of like a lot of like young Ugandans. Uh, we don't know if there will ever be a credible election. The past elections have completely, you know, have been bloody, have been violent, have been, you know, observers have called uh, the results into question. Or we don't know if there will ever be a peaceful transition come 2026 and beyond. So the fact that there's a lot of tension and a lot of unknowns about the future of Uganda, where does Uganda go after one man has sat in, in the seat of power for 37 years, after decades of one-man rule, it doesn't bode well for the country, it doesn't bode for its people, and it doesn't bode well for its neighbors. Mm. And zooming out even more, President Museveni is not the only leader in the region who is aging and clearly does not have a clear succession plan uh, in place either. Definitely very interesting. Thanks, Abdi. I'm going to pivot slightly. I'm very excited to to have you on our podcast. Your work has has always stood out. The stories you choose to tell, um, how you choose to tell them. I actually read, you know, in in, in many of your stories, almost an implicit critique of a lot of the foreign coverage in Africa. Uh, so, so, So I'm just wondering, how do you choose your stories? And also, where do you think a lot of foreign coverage on this continent falls short? I think the one issue that quickly comes to mind is given how big and large and diverse and dynamic this continent or even this region is, uh, sometimes like, you know, I think with foreign media coverage, the number of people or the number of resources uh, allocated to it do not match up when, for instance, like, you know, you you think about uh, other parts of the world. But I think, uh, at least for me, thinking about that and thinking about the challenge of like, how do you tell the story of this dynamic, but also very troubled region is in, you know, thinking deeply about the stories that I choose in terms of like also the breadth of the stories that we cover uh, to show that um, beyond the nuance and the complexity of like these places, as much as we write about the human rights abuses, uh, 
take place in Burundi, in Rwanda, uh, you know, it's also, I think, very important to talk about, like, you know, what the cultural and artistic and creative ambitions of the people there are, as much as we talk about, like, what's happening in Somalia and, like, from piracy to civil war to, like, terrorism to hunger now, I think it's very important to also, like, show how young Somalis, you know, joining the military or coming back from the diaspora to, like, you know, completely rebuild the country. What is it that readers in this region would like to read about themselves, but also how do we make sure that people who have never come here, who do not live here, uh, are able to get a nuanced uh, and much more complex vision of how people live in the streets of, of Bujumbura and how do they do business in the streets of Khartoum and, and, and what are the young amb- democratic ambitions of people in Sudan and how do they align with the people in, in Uganda? I mean, I cover up to 13 different countries with hundreds of millions of people and, 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 and hundreds of languages and ethnicities. And it's not easy, but I think every story um, is, is, I try and bring like, you know, nuance and complexity and, and, and to challenge myself in terms of like, you know, what is it that I know implicitly and, and I don't know explicitly that, that would be able to like, you know, uh, benefit a reader. I think another thing that is um, ab- about me is that I come from this region. I grew up in this region. I've covered this region for a long time. And so sometimes like, you know, you're not able to like see the interesting aspects that maybe some other readers out there are seeing or, you know, you take a lot of things for granted. And so I also give myself the challenge of like not taking things for granted and, and, and writing those stories. I, I love the story you just did on this restoration of a, of a library in Nairobi. Um, tell our listeners about Bookbunk. Yeah, so Bookbunk is a nonprofit uh, based in Nairobi, established in 2017. Uh, what they have been doing is they've given themselves the challenge of restoring uh, public libraries in Nairobi. Initially, the way they started is that they had wanted to hold an event, a literary event. The two founders had been part of like another, um, uh, the organization of another literary festival. And they wanted to hold an event at the Macmillan Memorial Library, which is in downtown Nairobi. It's um, a beautiful building built in 1931 that when it opened only allowed white attendants or patrons to to come. And so uh, since then, you know, it's given to the Nairobi City Council. But over the past decades, uh, for, for all sorts of reasons, it's become dilapidated. It's The book collections have not grown. Uh, and so what Bookbank did is that they decided that they were going to launch this project that would be able to restore it. But before they began with this major project in downtown Nairobi, they started looking at other public libraries within the city and have renovated at least two of them so far. But this the project has become much more than that. They've launched a podcast. They make, you know, do all these events all across the city. So uh, uh, I, I like that it's, it's, it's challenging many things. It's, it's about inclusivity. It's about negotiating history. It's about collecting uh, memory. It's about, you know, how do we think about Kenya and how do we think about our history and, and what is it about history that we should challenge? And I, and I really liked, you know, a lot of the, the type of conversations that they've sparked much more than, you know, we're just going to restore building and, and put a bunch of books in there and maybe people will go and read in there. Yeah, I used to have an office in, in downtown Nairobi and I admit I've, I've walked past that Macmillan building many times and I've also never uh, been inside. A, a great story. Um, So uh, moving back to our, <laughs> our more normal political uh, lens that we have on this uh, on this podcast, um, you, you covered the Kenyan election, you know, obviously quite extensively. I'm just wondering, how would you rate the Ruto presidency thus far and, and how would Kenyans, do you think? That's a good question. I mean, I think uh, I think in many ways, I think we are still in a honeymoon period. Uh, so I wouldn't want to make a lot of like, you know, um, speculations about it. But I think a few things that stand out for me was that, you know, 
the potentially ominous sign, particularly for freedom of press. I mean, the first day of Ruto's presidency, basically the morning he was inaugurated, the fact that, you know, a lot of like the local television stations were not allowed into the stadium. Mr. Ruto's administration basically handed the exclusive broadcast rights for the ceremony to a local affiliate of a South African pay TV company and the ways in which like the local media uh, uh, concerns were not addressed. I think that was very concerning for me and particularly because President Ruto had been part of a previous administration that muzzled the press and, and, and cracked down on, on, on many of their freedoms. I think another concerning thing that stands out for me was that, you know, uh, some of his own cabinet nominees who had been battling a litany of cases in the in, in the courts, a lot of those cases were quickly sort of like dismissed, uh, some of them right before some of those nominees had gone in front of parliament. He's made uh, overtures here and there that, you know, that there will be reforms uh, about police brutality and, and, and within the police force. Uh, I think uh, that's commendable, but it will be interesting to see how, uh, you know, his administration takes on that and implements those reforms. That's what I mean. And then finally, I think the economy, of course, and and inflation and, and, and the rising cost of food. I think that's, you know, every single Kenyan is thinking about that and and. He said that that's the priority of his government in terms of like making sure that he makes life easier uh, for Kenyans. And that hasn't panned out yet, largely because of either domestic uh, issues, but also like, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening globally, whether it's a war in Ukraine and the rising cost of, of food and fuel and fertilizer. And so I think it's been relatively interesting few months to watch, but I think we're still in the honeymoon period. Maybe in a few months time, we'll be able to like give a, a better sense of what is he as a person and what is his vision for this country going forward mm. and as part of Kenyan politics I think one of the one of the stories you've also uh, tracked for for quite a while and reporting for a while is this uh, scandal over the uh, the standard gauge rail the SDR train um, as it's uh, known in, in Kenya you know was was a, was a project that has uh, put Kenya under quite a lot of Chinese debt President Ruto just fulfilled a campaign promise or partially fulfilled it by publishing parts of that contract, which have been secret for a very long time. These published contracts revealed some, you know, very tough lending terms, um, including preferential treatment for, for Chinese goods, but also very strict terms in the, in the case of any sort of uh, default. I, I'm just wondering, generally speaking, um, besides these contracts, what's been the fallout of this entire scandal domestically? And how do you think all of this has affected the Kenya-China relationship and, and how Kenyans view China? On the question of how Kenyans view China, that's very interesting. I was, you know, deep in Western Kenya uh, around election time and speaking to voters on election day. And I had gone into a market and like, you know, was talking to people who had voted. And this lady uh, at the market who had a stall there was like, you know, talking about like inflation and the economy and like debt. And she said, we are suffering here deep in this small town because we went and borrowed from China. And so it was very interesting to see how the idea of like, you know, how the government, which President Ruto has been part of over the past decade, the debt that it accrued from China and how it was impacting the economy, how much, you know, Kenyans, even in far from flung parts of the country, were able to articulate and talk about and, and reference. Um, the railway, uh, yes, as you say, like, you know, it's turned into a complete fiasco. It's been the target of lawsuits criminal investigations, 
corruption, environmentalists and human rights uh, and labor rights activists coming out to say like how much it was impacting the environment and also people's employment. The other thing that I think that is key about the railway is that it literally ends in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so China uh, at some point realized that, you know, it it wasn't making any financial sense and stopped financing the last bit of the railway that would have connected it to Uganda, which was the initial plan. And I think Ruto uh, did understand the administration that he was part of had really messed up. And I think, uh, yes, uh, he has, Ruto has come out to like, you know, at least his government uh, has come out to um, publish part of the contract. But the bigger challenge is that will they publish the full contract, which would allow people like us, like journalists, activists, everybody else, the larger taxpaying public, to actually scrutinize the agreement and be able to say, what did you offer as a guarantee? How much money did you, you know, people make out of this train? Uh, as we know, Parliament has come out with all these reports showing, like, you know, millions of dollars were lost, uh, whether in land or in other contractual agreements. And I think the big th- question that his administration will face is uh, that uh, the Kenya Appeals Court said that the way the contract was done was illegal. The procurement was illegal. And it will be interesting to see because the case is now being litigated at the Supreme Court. And it'll be interesting to see the decision that the Supreme Court takes about the railway and how Hill government, his government will react uh, once that decision is, is out. Um, will they sit down and negotiate with the Chinese? Will they, you know, default on the loan? Uh, what type of discussions are they having with the Chinese? Because China is not going anywhere. I mean, it still is, and I, in many ways will be, the top financier of infrastructure projects in the country. Mm. And a, a lot of the discussion, I'd say, especially out of Washington, is about China's lending being being very uh, uh, predatory. But I imagine that none of this has played out very well from China's perspective either, especially the way it, it's sort of become a lightning rod in Kenyan politics. Do you have a sense from the conversations you're having that this is a lesson learned and might change the approach more broadly that, that China's taken towards the continent? Yes. I mean, we've definitely seen the taps close, at least from China's side. They are definitely um, in the last uh, China-Africa summit, uh, Xi Jinping didn't commit to paying billions and billions of dollars uh, to infrastructural projects like he did in, in previous summits. We're definitely getting a sense that these risky, big infrastructural projects that China basically was pouring money into a decade ago, are not getting as much because largely, you know, you, you're hearing trouble in Ethiopia where they built a railway. You're hearing a lot of trouble in Kenya. And we're also seeing a lot of African countries also look elsewhere. You know, countries like Uganda looking to Turkey, countries like Senegal maybe looking to France in terms of like, you know, where to look for financial support and investment for infrastructural projects. I'm going to turn us a bit south to Tanzania, which we cover some on this podcast, but we haven't covered as much. Uh, obviously, there's a, a newish, I, I think maybe fair to say still a newish uh, president there, uh, Samia Suluhu Hassan, who has um, started on the path towards some reforms, although perhaps incrementally. You've met President uh, Samia Suluhu. Um, I'm wondering, what did you learn about her and and what would you say is her vision for the country? Yeah, uh, in many ways, like, you know, Samia came in as an accidental president. Uh, you know, she replaced President John Magufuli in March 2021, who died um, while in office uh, right after he won his second term. So in many ways, like, you know, her presidency is being seen either 
as she's basically completing the term for President John Magufuli, uh, who had been known as the bulldozer. As we know, he played down the seriousness of the COVID pandemic. He cracked down on opposition, passed all these laws that were meant to maintain uh, the, the ruling party's grip on power. So she, when she came in, one of the things that, you know, immediately started sort of like reversing back on some of the, the things that he did. Um, uh, she took the COVID vaccine publicly. She urged investors to return. And um, as we, as you say, like, you know, recently also lifted a ban on political rallying, which so um, the country's leading opposition figure, Tundulisu, returned from exile. But it was interesting, like, you know, sitting down uh, to interview her last year, because one of the first things that she told me was that she was undermined as a female leader and, and that a lot of people just couldn't believe or didn't believe that Tanzania could actually have a female leader who could succeed in governing the country. So in many ways, like, you know, she was starting from a point of like, I had to prove myself and got on this call with a lot of like the female leaders in the continent, including the former Liberian president, Ellen Johnson Salif, uh, to basically discuss what it's like to be a, a female uh, leader, particularly in a country and a region that hasn't uh, had one. Um, and uh, in terms of like, you know, just have vision for the country, I think a large part of the vision that she spoke to me about was the economic, was basically finishing a lot of like the projects that Magufuli has started where they were infrastructural, you know, educational, improving the maternal healthcare in the country. But on the flip side of that is, uh, you know, she's come under very much a lot of criticism for moving slowly on ratifying promise changes and basically undertaking some of the same steps that her predecessor had done. Like, so Freeman Bowie, who's another opposition leader, had been arrested for like eight months. You know, journalists have faced a lot of like, you know, harassment. Several newspapers were suspended. And of course, like last year, we did see how much criticism she received when her government, uh, you know, violently evicted indigenous Maasai villages from their land to pave the way for tourism and, and trophy hunting. Uh, and I think another key issue that was that her government is yet to investigate the conduct of the 2020 elections or hold to account um, the security forces that had beaten, tortured and killed a lot of opposition members, including in Zanzibar. Right now, you know, she is definitely positioning herself to run in 2025. She did not confirm to me, but uh, some of the people within the ruling party and people very close to her who I spoke to said that she is definitely positioning herself to run. It will be interesting to see if she faces pushback from powerful forces within the ruling party and within the intelligence services who are in many ways not happy with some of these reforms that she has introduced. And another key challenge that she will also face is whether she will be able to implement or allow for a new constitution to be ratified. We're running uh, near to out of time. So I have just a couple more sort of topics to to raise quickly with you. Um, You followed developments in Somalia very closely and have uh, reported there for for quite a long time. I could ask you a lot of specific questions, including about the offensive against al-Shabaab right now and the, you know, very terrible drought and and hunger situation. But I'm going to broaden it out slightly more and just, you know, ask you, what, what do you think it would take to make Somalia a better place for its people? That's a very hard question to answer. I think particularly as a journalist who not only reports from the country, but also as a Somali, ethnic Somali, who has lived in the country, have you know, and has a lot of uh, interest and stake in the country. I think, uh, yes, as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, hunger across Somalia, uh, you know, as a biting drought takes hold. There are, you know, many clashes across many parts of the country, the Shabaab and the deadly attacks that they continue to carry against the civilians and... Uh, and military targets. 
and all this can look like to particularly whether it's an uh, outsider observer or like you know people living within the country that many things aren't working but we know that many Somalis have been working very hard to make the country peaceful. You know, young Somalis have joined the military to rebuff the threats of the Shabaab. Some of them have, you know, quit very good jobs in the West to like come back and, and, and rebuild the police. People are coming back from the diaspora to set up businesses. Architects are rebuilding, you know, the cities. Young Somalis who've never left the country, who've barely had any resources to like do anything. You know, they have putting their efforts together to set up all these music centers and libraries and, and, and book festivals, right? And I think while death and destruction are the main themes that, that dominate the news that we write about, like we cover, uh, there are also all these young Somalis who are making the country a better place. Uh, and I think we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget the incremental, slow, and at times unseen process of state building. And I think that's, I think, for me, where I, I, I rest hope and, and where I think those tiny little efforts that are unseen could uh, and will work to make Somalia a better place for its people. And maybe that's the op- optimist in me. <laughs> no, I, I love that. I love that line about the the quiet, unseen uh, state building. So just to close here, uh, something something I've seen your byline pop up on quite a bit over the past year is coverage that the Times is doing on perhaps the perceptions of the of the war in Ukraine from from places outside the West, especially in the global South. When Africans in this region talk about the the war in Ukraine, how do they talk about it and, and what do they see? Maybe if I can use a word, I think non-alignment is the word that keeps coming up. It it came up in conversations with President Samir when I interviewed her about like, you know, why Africans were like either not taking part in like condemning the war in Ukraine or voting for resolutions uh, against Russia in the United Nations. When the war broke out, I think February, March, like, you know, I did a bit of reporting within Kenya and, and in the region, like, you know, just talking to people. And a lot of them kept talking about how Africa should be non-aligned in this war and that this is a European or a Western war and that, you know, as much as, you know, the impact of the war on food and fuel and fertilizer is um, decimating lives and economies uh, in this region particularly, that, you know, Africa should learn to stay out uh, because not many people, they would say, at least that's what they were telling me, that not many people care about all the wars that are happening in our countries or, or you know, uh, flooding accounts in Somalia, you know, to respond to the, the drought uh, and the impending famine. I think in the minds of a lot of young people that I've spoken to, the memories of European colonialism also loom large. And I think that also sort of like figures into how they feel about this war and, and about the role of Africans in it. And you saw that particularly being amplified right around the beginning of the war when we were hearing a lot of these students, uh, these stories about students being um, refused to sort of like cross the border from Ukraine uh, uh, and and into other parts of Europe, uh, whether they were either getting pushed, getting, you know, sidelined while, you know, the Ukrainians were getting easy access. And I I think uh, lastly, one of the things that many young Africans, or at least not young, but also like the middle-aged older people talk about is the memories of the Soviet Union's support for African independence struggles and the impact of that. And so that's something even General Muhozi uh, of Uganda uh, just put out in a tweet last week saying that, you know, we will never forget how they stood for us and how they supported us. And so we should be there for Russia now. So that's also sort of like um, the, the, the various sort of like themes that I'm hearing about the war in Ukraine in this region. Thanks, Abdi, for circling us back to uh, to where we started with with General Muhozi. Um, and and th- thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. This was fun. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm Alan Boswell, and The Horn is a production of the International Crisis Group. The Horn is produced by Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. 